This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. For more downloads, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk or join us in person at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. Before we start looking at prophecies in the book of Micah, it's quite important that we have a think about Bible prophecies a bit more generally and ask the question, are Bible prophecies relevant today? Because if they're not relevant today, what's the point in looking at them? In Mark chapter 13, the Lord Jesus forecasts the downfall of Jerusalem and while it's a very interesting uh, chapter to read, the, the, the point is this. In verse 4, the disciples ask, Tell us when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? And the Lord Jesus answers with this wonderful prophecy, and then he concludes in verse 33 of the same chapter, Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. And that is the point of Bible prophecies. It's there so that we can watch. It's there so that we can pray. It's there so that it can build up our faith and our confidence in the things that the Lord God has, uh, has done around us. And so the challenge for us is to watch the world around. Not to try and guide it down a certain route so that it fits with our understanding of Scripture. It, it, it's not to try and... Um, fit things where they don't fit it's to watch it's to confirm the truth found in the pages of the Bible and what we're going to do this afternoon is, is, is look at a few of these prophecies in Micah uh, some of them have been fulfilled and some of them are still to be fulfilled we're just going to be really scratching the surface all I'm trying to do really is whet your appetite it's very important, though, that we don't forecast dates. If you look at Mark chapter 13 and verse 33, Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. The Lord Jesus was talking about a, about a very specific um, prophecy with that comment, but I think we can apply it to all prophecies. You don't know when it's going to happen. You can't sit there and say, Jesus is going to return in 1992, which I've heard someone say. 1992 has been and gone. How is that person's faith now? But other prophecies have come true in that time. So, let's move on to Micah, the prophecy of Micah with that preamble. The whole purpose of the prophecy that Michael, Micah wrote as he was inspired by God to write, was to warn God's people that judgment is coming and it was there to offer pardon to those who repented. The original audience was the people of Israel. And the people of Israel were split into two distinct areas. There was the northern kingdom, which was known as Israel, which is denoted on this map in red, and the southern kingdom, which is uh, which was known as Judah, which is in purple. 
the message was mainly aimed at the people of Judah in the southern kingdom but it also applied to the people in the north it was it was written during the reigns of uh, kings Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah and we'll see that in a minute from chapter 1 and verse 1 and um, these were kings which were around at that time the prophets Micah and Isaiah prophesied at exactly the same time and, and I'm pretty convinced I won't say I'm 100% dogmatic about this but I'm pretty convinced that they knew each other why is that? Well, some of the verses, as we'll see, are word perfectly the same. They are exactly the same, word for word. So what we're going to look at this afternoon, we're going to take a quick overview of chapters 1, 2 and the start of chapter 3, mainly to get the context uh, and to um, look at some history which is behind the prophecy of Micah. And then we're going to go into more detail into the end of chapter 3 and chapters 4 and 5. So the prophecy of Micah, as we said, was written over the reign of three different kings. King Jotham, Jotham King Ahaz and King Hezekiah. Uh, they're there named in Micah chapter 1 and verse 1 if you, if you want to open your Bibles there. Now, Jotham and Hezekiah were both... Uh, very good kings who tried to follow God, who tried to encourage the people that they ruled over to follow suit. King Ahaz, though, was possibly one of the most evil kings the world has ever known. You'll notice um, the dates are a bit funny between King Jotham and King Ahaz. King Jotham was from uh, 750 BC to 732 BC. King Ahaz from 735 to 715 BC. That is absolutely correct. They were what's called co-regents. The two kings ruled at the same time. And I don't know quite the background or the history behind that. Perhaps someone who, who does, if they do know why that happened, could perhaps enlighten me. But we do know that they overlapped. They were co-regents for the space of either three or four years. I need to emphasize that these characters were, were very, very real. Some people read the Bible as if it's, it's not real. These are real characters. Documents have been found which bore the, the seal of these kings. King Ahaz, this evil one who is in the middle, you can see his seal is the one on the top. That's where they'd take a portion of clay, they'd put it on a document and the king would, would put his seal on it to prove, it was like a signature, to prove that it was him that, that, that approved it. King Hezekiah's is the one which is below. The interesting thing about King Ahaz's is, if you look on the left-hand side of that, uh, that's, that picture that's up there, you'll see some indentations. That is part of a thumbprint. That may well be King Ahaz's thumbprint, but it can't be confirmed, of course. These people are very very real now the prophecies in Micah begin uh, properly in verse 3 and it begins with a judgment against Samaria and Jerusalem Samaria is a country which is adjacent to, to uh, the, the, the nation of Israel in this time and it was full of a, a, a mixed race of people that's what uh, Samaria means I believe it means m mixed people uh, and they were partly from the, the Israelites and they were partly from the surrounding nations 
And they are told because of their sins, their transgressions, in verse 5, um, that they will be punished. Verse 6, they're told that they will become heaps of rubble. And the sins of Samaria are incurable. God's judgments had already begun, begun. And Micah continues with judgment of city after city, working around the country because of the people's sins. Now I'd like us just to pick out chapter 1 and verse 13. Chapter 1 and verse 13 reads, O thou inhabitant of Lachish, bind the chariot to the swift beast. She is the beginning of the sin to the daughter of Zion, for the transgressions of Israel were found in thee. Let's just put a bit of background on this, a bit of flesh on the bones. Lachish. Lachish was the second city to Jerusalem at that point in time. Okay, It was the Birmingham to London, or Manchester if you're in this area perhaps. Lachish means invincible, Okay, or impenetrable. It was a big hill fort. Now, this is described here, this city, as the beginning of the sin to the daughter of Zion. Zion is one of the mountains upon which Jerusalem is built, and we'll, we'll be looking into that in a lot more detail. Lachish is being blamed here for the sins which have spread out across the country and particularly manifest themselves in Jerusalem. And as a, as a result of that, Lachish is particularly condemned within this chapter. Why is Lachish so interesting? Well, the ruins are there for us to see today. This is the city gate, or what, what's left of it. And it's one of those intriguing pieces of history where the surrounding nations have many records, too, of Lachish. What happened was that, in, in the history, is that King Hezekiah refused to pay um, taxes to the Syrian king, who was a, a, a man called King Sennacherib. As a result, King Sennacherib set out on a campaign to uh, subjugate uh, the rebelling kingdoms. And on the way, he came across Lachish. And we know particularly that it was one of the first cities that he came to. And we know it was the second most important of the Jewish cities. So he, he went for the Manchester before he went for the London, which makes sense really, doesn't it? King Sennacherib laid siege to Lachish. This is the siege ramp that was built up the, the, the side of the mountain. Uh, so that's where King Sennacherib and his men walked up when they were taking this city. But the really interesting thing was that King Sennacherib was so pleased with his work that what he did was he commissioned what's called the Lakish Reliefs. Basically, what they took was some stone and they carved images and, and some text of the, uh, the situation that they, they had. Um, now, these reliefs are a, a set of pictures um, of, of his accomplishments, of King Sennacherib's accomplishments, uh, of which there are many in the British Museum. There, there's, there's others in other museums around the world, but uh, there's a very good collection at the British Museum. This is one of them. Uh, you can see that uh, to the top left and to the top right that uh, 
There's some writing, not as we understand writing, but it's there as, as what's called cuneiform. And there's a, an inscription on this, and it says this. Sennacherib, the mighty king, king of the country of Assyria, sitting on the throne of judgment. I give, uh, sorry, uh, the, the, on the throne of judgment of the city of Lachish, I give permission for its slaughter. So he's there. He's at Lachish. He gives permission. For what? For the soldiers to go in and to massacre the city and to break it up. A bit later on, within the relief series, we find these pictures. And this is King Sennacherib. You can just see there on the right, sat on his throne. And you can see the prisoners from Lachish. He's there reviewing them. We have other confirmation as well. We have what's called the Sennacherib prisms. Um, the, the, the prisms were found originally, the first one was by a Colonel Taylor in 1830, which is in a, a city called, well, the ruins of a city called Nineveh, which uh, is in modern-day Iraq. This particular one is now on show in the British Museum. The, two of the prisms exist, which are copies of this, uh, well, the we don't know what order they were copied in, but they're identical to this. This hexagonal uh, clay uh, prism, which has been written in in the cuneiform language. Uh, one's in the Oriental Institute of Chicago. The other's in the Israel Museum, which is in Jerusalem. And all three of them have a de detailed description of how Lachish was taken. And it just brings to life things like this verse, uh, verse 13 of chapter 1, where where we're told that they have sinned, that they have caused all these problems, which go all the way across Israel, and particularly to the capital city, Jerusalem, and that they will be punished for it. And there is the record of the punishment. Let's move on then to uh, Micah chapter 2. Micah chapter 2 and verse 1. Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. So this is a prophecy against those who, who plan evil things at night and then rise up at dawn to do them. Look at verse 2. And they covet fields and take them by violence and houses and take them away. So they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his heritage. Uh, that's all about talking about coveting, isn't it? About taking, taking what you desire by force. It's about fraud. It's about violence. And it might seem that these accusations are harsh against the people of Israel. But look at chapter 2 and verses 6 and 7. Prophesy ye not. Say they to them that prophesy, they shall not prophesy to them, that they shall not take shame. O thou that art named the house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord straightened? Are these his doings? Do not my works do good to them that walketh uprightly? Remember that God did not want to take revenge on Israel. He wanted them back on the right path. The people had rejected what was right and they needed true and stern discipline. And this carries on all the way through. Uh, Micah chapter 2 and chapter 3 just look at verse 11 if a man 
walking in the spirit and falsehood do lie saying I will prophesy unto thee of wine and of strong drink he shall even be the prophet of this people I'm going to put it to you in the new international version it's, it's slightly more clear if a liar and deceiver comes and says I will prophesy you plenty of wine and beer that will be just the prophet for this people I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer. That would be just the prophet for this people. The people liked false prophets. The people liked prophets that told them what they wanted to hear. And on this situation, they wanted wine and they wanted beer. It's as simple as that. Micah speaks against the prophets who encouraged the people to feel comfortable in their sin, which was overindulgence. And this wickedness continues. It's there on the screen, isn't it? Verse 8, stealing, dishonesty. Chapter 2 and verse 9, driving widows from their homes. Um, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, hating good, loving evil. That, these are all these things that these people were, were doing, which was uh, wrong in the Lord's sight. Verse 9, despising justice, distorting what is right. Verse 10 of chapter 3, murder. Verse 11 of chapter 3, taking bribes. And this wickedness culminates in chapter 3 and verse 12. Therefore shall Zion for your sake be ploughed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. As I said earlier, Zion is one of the mountains upon which Jerusalem is built. Now this is a twofold prophecy. The, first, the, the city was, was first destroyed in 586 BC when King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army attacked. And we know that it was in a really bad state. Uh, just keep your finger in Micah, if you would, and just find Nehemiah. And we can find out how bad this situation was. Nehemiah chapter 2. And verse 14. Sorry, Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 17. And, and what's happening here is Nehemiah has arrived back at the city and he goes and reviews the work that's been undertaken at Jerusalem. And this is how Nebuchadnezzar had left it. Chapter 2 and verse 17. Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we, that we be no more a reproach. Just move on to chapter 4 and verse 2, because we find there another character, Sam Ballot. And this again demonstrates how, how bad a state Jerusalem has been left in. Um, he mocks the attempts to rebuild it as a thing being impossible chapter uh, 4 and verse 2 will they revive the stones out of the heaps of dust and these two burned all the stones were burned stones no good when it's been burnt 
I only found that out a couple of uh, a couple of years ago when we, we, we had a bonfire right next to our, our garden wall and, and some of the stones had just split because of the, I believe it's to do with high pressure of water and so on, which is contained within the stone. But, but when stone's been burned, it's no good. You can't use it again. It's only good for throwing away. Um, move on to verse 10. We find there that the, the, the builders complaining and Judah said, the strength of the bearers of Burns is decayed, and there is so much rubbish so that we are not able to build the wall. Where it says that word decayed, it, it, it doesn't mean decay as we, we think of the word decay. It, it means literally sinketh under them. What it's telling us is that there was so much dust, there was so much rubble, there was so much rubbish that they were not able to walk across it properly to build the wall. That is the state which Nebuchadnezzar left that city in. Turn back to Micah. The second um, part of this prophecy came with the Romans. The Romans apparently had a saying, a city with a plough is built, with a plough overthrown. Absolutely right with that first statement, aren't they? A city with a plough is built. That's where you uh, start your farming from and so on and so forth to be able to feed the people which are in the city. Easily understood. With a plough overthrown. What the Romans believed is that if they wanted to symbolically bring a city to an end, well, they'd get the plough out and they would plough it. There's a Roman historian at the time called Jerome. And he records the ploughing of the temple during the years of the emperor Titus and his son Vespasian in AD 70. A similar event comes after a further revolt of the Jews in AD 135 um, under Emperor Hadrian. And again, the city was ploughed. Now, chapter 3 and verse 12 tells us quite specifically that Zion shall be ploughed as a field. This is a coin from AD 135. Image on the left, exactly the same as our coins. This is the emperor's head. We have the queen's head on ours, don't we? That's the emperor Hadrian. On the right is the flip side to it, the tails. It's oxen ploughing. Where? Jerusalem. It's the fulfilment of one of God's prophecies on a coin. Wonderful. Now the chapter division between chapters 3 and verse 12 and, and chapter 4 and verse 1 is, is arbitrary. It, it, it breaks the flow of the prophet's message really and in, in some ways it shouldn't be there but it, but it is. Uh, God is saying that despite the fact that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed which as we said finally came round in AD 135 there will be a time of great joy for Israel and for Jerusalem. Clearly, this will be at the time when Christ returns. So we've seen prophecies in Micah that the mountain Zion, the, the mountain on which the temple uh, is, is adjacent to, will be ploughed like a field, and Jerusalem would be destroyed and become a heap of rubble. But Micah then contrasts this with chapter 4 and verse 1. But in the last days... It shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord 
shall be established in the top of the mountains and, and it shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow to it. The phrase in the last days at the start of that verse describes the days when God will reign over his perfect kingdom. And what will it be like? Well, Andrew read it for us, didn't he? So we won't go through it, but we can pick out these points. Verse 1, it's described as being perfect. It will be worldwide. Verse 3, it will be based on righteousness and justice. Again, it will be at peace in verse 3. In verse 4, it will be characterized by security, by prosperity. It will be assured by the word of God. And verse 5, all will walk in the name of God. The landscape will change physically too. Notice in Micah chapter 4 and verse 1, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains and it shall be exalted above the hills. Now this is um, a, a relief map or a contour map of the um, of around Mount uh, of around uh, Jerusalem. The blue arrow at the top is uh, pointing towards the north. So just so you know, it's it's on its side. Um, but you can see there Mount Moriah. That's the mountain which the temple was built on, and lots of other events in in the history of the Bible uh, happened on Mount Moriah. And then Mount Zion is to the um, the west of uh, sorry, Mount Zion is to the west of Mount Moriah. And that, that's where this prophecy is. Now, I don't know how many of you know about contours and so on, but basically the, the closer contour lines are together on a map, the steeper the hillside is. It's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. And you can see that there's an awful lot of contour lines on there. We've got Mount Zion, which tops out at 773 metres. We've got Mount Moriah, which is 748 metres. You've got this uh, tyro Pion Valley in between, which which drops down by a good hundred and something metres between the two mountains. You've got the Kidron Valley, you've got the, the, the Hinnon Valley. It's not flat, it's not level. But chapter one, uh, 4 and verse 1 it is a description of an elevated plateau. It's going to be the highest place in the mountains uh, which are around there. The topography is going to change quite significantly. Why is that? This is a map of the eastern end of the Mediterranean, the Red Sea, um, and the, the, the Arabian Peninsula. And you can see the top of Africa with Egypt there. This shows where the fault lines and so on are, which are running through that area of the world. And you've got things on there like transfer, convergence, divergence. That's all to do with how the different plates on the, the earth are moving. If they're converging, they're moving together. If they're diverging, they're moving apart. And if they're transverse, they're rubbing up against each other in shear. And there is a, a fault line between these different plates, which are where earthquakes occur, running straight up the middle of Israel straight up the Dead, the, the Dead Sea, straight up the, uh, um, the, the Jordan Valley. And what is really interesting is that there is an offshoot from there which runs straight across through the middle of Jerusalem. It's perfectly possible that God has set all this up 
ready for when Christ returns. Just find Zechariah chapter 14 with me, if you would. It's one of the uh, last books in the, the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 4. Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 4. This is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and his return. And his feet, the Lord Jesus' feet, shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And the Bible is not a book about geology. It's not a book which is about science. It's never pretended to be. But it is ahead of its time. The fact that there is a fault line, a fissure, running straight through the middle of the Temple Mount, straight through where the Mount of Olives are, where Jesus will return to, shows that the book is uh, far ahead of its time. And the fact that the Lord Jesus on the Mount of Olives could speak with his disciples about the end times, Matthew chapter 24, um, he's near this mountain, he's on the Mount of Olives. Um, and, and also an angel promised that the Lord Jesus would return in the same manner as he had left, to the same spot on the Mount of Olives, Acts chapter 1 and verse 11. Let's move on. Let's pick out some more items of interest in Micah and chapter 3 and 4. Right, we're in chapter 4 and verse 3 now. Now this picture, um, I'd like to think it was uh, modelled on, uh, on myself, but I'm, I'm assured it wasn't. Um, it's outside the United Nations. It's a very strong Muslim man who is there with a, a huge uh, mallet or hammer. Uh, I don't know if there's a more technical name for it. And he has a sword and he's beating it. And below this uh, incredibly uh, big statue are these words. These are actually taken from Isaiah. I don't know if you remember, I've mentioned that Isaiah and, and, and Micah are inextricably linked with their prophecies. This is from Isaiah, um, or at least it's attributed to Isaiah if you look in the bottom right-hand corner. However, the words are identical in Micah chapter 4 and verse 3. And he shall judge among many people, and shall rebuke strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Now, Judah, tiny little Judah, has been threatened by war for most of its existence. And now Isaiah and Micah predict that far from bringing oppression, the triumph of faith in God will bring a peace the world has ever known. And it's a peace where those weapons will be taken and they'll be turned into 
uh, things that are uh, used for peaceful means, for, 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 for plowing, for, for pruning. And it's interesting if we, if we were to go into uh, Isaiah in chapter 11, there's a, a description there which, which echoes all of this. And, and, and it takes the theme of peace and it, it talks about um, different animals uh, being peaceful towards each other beyond, um, beyond what would be considered to be natural. And it's the same with the human race. Under the Lord God's guidance, peace can be there on the earth. Let's move on to chapter 4 and verse 5. For all the people will walk everyone in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. It's interesting, isn't it? We don't have to be like everyone else. Other people might worship movie stars, sports heroes, singers, fast cars, fashion, finances. But Micah says there, we will worship the Lord our God. What a wonderful statement to make. The big difference between the gods that people worship and the Lord is that other gods have no future. If they are people, they'll be dead in a few years. If they are possessions, they can be reduced. They can be gone, like that, before we know it. Added to how temporary everything is, the fact that no other gods can do anything for us should be thrown into this. They cannot save. The Lord, on the other hand, will work powerfully in our lives if we let him. He loves us personally. He's promised us an eternity with him. Why be like everyone else with no future? Let's move on to chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They will smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. Jerusalem's leaders were obsessed with wealth and with position. Mike prophesied that mighty Jerusalem with all its wealth and power would be, be, be besieged. It would be destroyed. Its king could not save it. In contrast though. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, in verse 2, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. This is a, an artist's impression. Bethlehem nowadays is a, a bustling town in Israel. This is an artist's impression of perhaps what it would have looked like back at those, in those times. A very small rural community. Well, this is very interesting, isn't it? Bethlehem. It, it forecasts here that this deliverer, this Messiah, would be born as a baby in Bethlehem. Of course, that links into Luke chapter 2. I've just put it up on the screen there to save you looking for it. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, in, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, 
because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it carries on where the Lord Jesus was born in this, this small town. Eventually, as we know, he would be there to reign as the eternal king. What's really interesting is that the prophet Micah is not hedging his bets. He's not just saying, oh, it's some Bethlehem. Because there's four or five Bethlehems in Israel. The name Ephrata is an area. It's named after uh, Ephrata, who was the, 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 the wife of Caleb. Not, not Caleb, who was one of the, the spies, a, a different Caleb. It's a very specific Bethlehem, the one in Ephrata. And the verse that follows the... Uh, sorry, uh, let's just look at this. Uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 2. Uh, verse 19, this is where Caleb takes to him Ephrata, which um, bore him the son Hur. In 1 Chronicles chapter 2, we can see there that uh, Salma is the father of Bethlehem. We can link the two together. It was a very specific, small village in the uh, land of Judah. Now, the verse that follows... Uh, the birth of Jesus here in chapter, uh, chapter 5 and verse 2 seems to skip from the time of his birth through to after his ascension when Israel was scattered through the whole world by the Romans Israel had as they had so often done before through history abandoned the Lord their God and so God as he said he would abandoned them but God had also said that he would not abandon them forever but that he would return to them and bring them back to their own land again. So we read in chapter 5 and verse 3. Therefore will he give them up. Until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. When the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. This is the time in which we are living. This is now. When Israel is a nation. The Jews are returning to their homeland. And now the last part of this prophecy is about to be fulfilled when the Lord Jesus will stand up and will rule his people in the majesty and strength of his Lord God. His influence will stretch from Israel to the ends of the earth. The promises include you and me. Are we ready is the question. Look at chapter 5 and verse 4. And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. And that ties in, doesn't it, with Psalm 72. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. Look at verse 5 of Micah chapter 5. And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land. When he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. This man shall be the peace it provides one of the clearest Old Testament prophecies of Christ's coming the key is in that descriptive phrase there and this man shall be the peace in one of Christ's final uh, talks that he, he gave he said peace I leave with you my peace I give unto you not as the world giveth give I unto you let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. 
And because of Christ's first coming, we have the opportunity to experience peace with God with no more fear of judgment, no more conflict, no more guilt. Christ's peace gives us assurance even though wars continue. At Christ's second coming, all wars and weapons will be destroyed as we've seen. So we asked a question at the start of this talk. Are Bible prophecies relevant to me today? Yes, they are very clearly very relevant. We've seen how archaeology has confirmed the existence of people and places. It's, it's not just a made-up fairy tale. We've seen that Bible prophecies on occasion give us very specific information about people or, for example, where, where Jesus was born. We've seen how they apply to us today. We've seen that they give us hope for the future should we live our lives in faith. Now, some people don't want to be followers of Christ because they don't want to be burned with all the rules that followers of Christ seem to have to live by. And looking in from the outside, those of us who follow Christ can sometimes seem like we're living a life of don'ts and do's. It can seem restrictive, can't it, having to do all the things that the followers of Christ do and being restrained from all the, in inverted comma, fun things that people like to do. And the Jews in Micah's day felt the same way. God asked them in chapter 6 and verse 3, My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. Well, we could answer by having to read the Bible, staying sober, by having to go to the meeting on Sunday. God reminds Israel that he had brought them up out of Egypt. They'd redeemed them from the land of slavery. He'd also provided them with guides, with leaders, with victories over their enemies. And it's the same with us. Though there may seem to be some things that we are burdened with, they are really blessings to keep us on track with God, to keep us, in so much as we can, pure, in so much as we can, free from the burden of sin and ready to receive the freedom from death in God's gift of eternal life. He hasn't burdened us. He's really set us free. Sometimes the rules people make burden us, but God's way gives us freedom, not burdens. And doing things his way and doing them with the Lord Jesus is much easier than doing it all alone. So let's bring our thoughts then to a conclusion. Because if we were to pick out a key verse in Micah, it would be this one. Chapter 6 and verse 8. And this instruction is to both mankind in general, but it can also be taken as personal to ourselves. There are three parts in doing what the Lord requires of us. Act justly. The words themselves are as simple as the message. Do justice. See that justice is done. Lord Jesus expanded on this when he said, Do not judge and you will not be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Love mercy. Other versions say, love kindness. Let mercy be your first concern and show constant love. Again, the Lord Jesus reinforced this by saying, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy, and be merciful just as your Father is merciful. 
And then finally walk humbly with God. God does not like pride. He likes us to be honest in our estimation of ourselves. We can't walk with God if we insist on leading the way. We need to be humble. Realizing that God knows best in everything. Again, the Lord Jesus said, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. So let us act justly, let us love mercy, and let us walk humbly with our God. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. We hope you enjoyed that talk. For more downloads, information about what we believe, and details of our meeting times, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk. Thank you.